0: I
1: don't know, but I am told The Parthenon is mighty old Oh, old? We don't know well, That's real good, but needs improvement
0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Springfield Googleplex The movie podcast for Simpson fans Each week we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the film? Or maybe when we finally saw it, we realized, hey, that's where that sexy joke comes from. Regardless, each week we pick one that at least one of us hasn't seen or hasn't seen in a while, watch it, and come together to discuss. I'm your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me as always is the private pile to my private joker, my co-host, Nate Story. I don't
1: know how I feel about saying that you're a private pile. I had I really, like, tr- like, a lot of trouble with this one because there aren't really any friends in this movie. No, that's true. That's, that I, is, I had, yeah. <laughs> for a while, I had the Charlene to my private pile, but yeah, that, that also felt kind of bleak. I don't really want to be a rifle, yeah, so. Yeah,
0: no, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, any, to that end, uh, if it wasn't clear from that introduction, this week we watched Stanley Kubrick's 1987 war classic Full Metal Jacket. You might remember it from such Simpson episodes as season one's Bart the General, Season Two's Dead Putting Society, Season Five's Sweet Seymour Skinner's Badass Song, Season 7, Sideshow Bob's Last Gleaming, and maybe Season 12's Hungry Hungry Homer. But today, specifically, we're gonna be talking about Bart the General, which is the fifth episode of Season One. We're going way, 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 way back for this, uh, which I gotta admit, season one is kind of a blind spot for me because I, yeah, I don't tend to rewatch these very much. Because boy, oh boy, they <laughs> they haven't
1: <laughs> the, aged well. Whew. The animation in this one is really, really is hit rough. and miss. But it's kind of an interesting episode, but like for a couple reasons. I mean. So there's a lot of firsts, right? The first time that um, Nelson Muntz shows up as a character as well Ooh. as Herman the guy who runs the like military <laughs> the paraphernalia supply shop. shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. It's actually John Schwartzwelzer's first script for the Simpsons. So that's that's crazy. really cool considering like how prolific he becomes in later times. And he's just such a character too. I mean, like they talk a lot about him in the commentary. Just, you know, this guy is a chain smoker. He used to drive a Cadillac to work, like this old vintage Cadillac. And back in the day, he would write in the diners of the San Fernando Valley, which is, you know, a particular area of Los Angeles, if you're familiar. Basically, he did that until they outlawed indoor smoking. And then he bought the diner booth from one of his (laughs) coffee shops and installed it in his home to write and drink coffee and smoke. (laughs) That's... That's so that gives you, like, the... a little a glimpse into the mind of John Swartzwelder.
0: That's maybe the coolest thing ever. And, of course, has a great deal of mystique around him because there right. are... You know, for years there were rumors like maybe he's a pen name and not really an actual writer. And mm-hmm. then they tried to get him on the commentaries and he refused. And then they finally did get him on a commentary and then he pretended it wasn't. And so it's like, yeah, but allegedly he is a real guy. He really does exist, and he apparently has written a couple books. And in a yeah. bunch of the commentary tracks, they talk about like how incredible his books are.
1: And uh, yeah, and he actually did an interview with the New York Times, like right, maybe even last year or something like that, uh, Relatively which was a pretty recently. big deal. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. And the other thing that's kind of a landmark about this episode is that it is one of the first really movie-heavy, parody-heavy episodes. Really,
0: really heavy. It's funny that we talk about, like, how rough the animation was because, like, I noticed almost immediately the lip sync is terrible. Like, there's the scene where Bart first comes onto the bus and he's talking to Otto. And, like, it literally looks like it could be, like, a, a Japanese anime dub. The lip sync is so, like just not, it's, yeah exactly but then it was funny the scene where nelson just starts punching bart in the face and all the different faces he's making i immediately yeah. was like i bet you this is a david silverman episode and sure enough <laughs> it was directed by david silverman so right. even right. in those early episodes where it's still a little bit janky and a little bit rough it's nice to know that i can still like see the seeds of certain directors' styles so
1: totally i mean as much as it is kind of like rough as we've said it's also pretty ambitious, right? They do some really interesting cartoony stuff that would never happen on the show in later seasons. In this one, Bart has a lot of fantasies in this episode where yep. he's running from Nelson and Nelson's huge, and you know, <laughs> there's the sort of like dream space that you see in like uh, other cartoons, but not usually yeah. on The Simpsons anymore. Because even now, when like one of them has a fantasy, it feels weirdly grounded. I guess like I'm thinking of. The land of chocolate, which like on one hand is obviously this like totally fantastical world, but everything follows the rules of physics and and like right. nothing is like stretched and extended in any kind of weird way. It looks like the real world but made of chocolate, you know. Totally.
0: Well, and then one of the more cartoonish elements, but I thought it was a really funny gag that made me laugh every time was when Bart would cough his hat up.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. which again is not that. some
0: that's not something they would do now because it is too cartoony. And, like, that was the thing that kind of struck me is just, like, you're right. It, this, The show hasn't quite developed into what it obviously became. It felt much more like a cartoon. Whereas right. we have sort of said, like, as it evolves, it basically becomes an animated sitcom versus mm-hmm. a cartoon. And it was kind of interesting to sort of see that trajectory of how the show has shifted and evolved. But also to your point, of in terms of the sheer number of movie parodies in this, that there is sort of that thing that would become the through line through the rest of the show. Like it's laying those seeds.
1: Yeah, totally. And I mean, it's just a mashup of war movies, right? Right? It's like this is their war episode. And so they're like bringing together Full Metal jacket, of course. But also, like, there's a lot of Patton in here. A, l- there's a-, a lot
0: of Patton, including the score, which was, like, the right. thing that I sort of, like, dug the deepest into my brain, like, hearing that echoing trumpet, and I was like, that's from right. Patton, right? And I literally had
1: to look it up, because I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's from Patton. I'm sure yeah. it is, but... And, and not even a sound-alike, because, of course, we don't have Alf Clausen yet, for one thing. Right. Which, you know, becomes his sort of specialty. But also, Patton is a Fox movie, and so they right. could get the actual rights to use the music. But then you also have moments from Stripes, which is, you know, a war comedy, uh, and, yeah. as well as The Longest Day in here. So it's all kind of mixed together. And that becomes kind of like a classic Simpsons move to be like, we're kind of parodying a genre. And you might recognize bits and pieces from specific movies, but it's also kind of a general parody. Like I think of Bart the Murderer, where they're doing... You know, a bit of Goodfellas, a bit of the Godfather, a bit of Godfather Part 2, like all of these different things kind of coming together. So that's like their gangster episode, you know. So it's interesting seeing the seeds of that sown here in a really ambitious way, even if it doesn't pull it off to the same sort of level of quality as they would later, you know.
0: Okay, well, should we jump into the movie then? Because we don't have as much to say about this episode.
1: (laughs) Yeah, let's do it.
0: Okay, so Nate, how would you um, sum this movie up in a sentence?
1: You know, it's funny because I feel like I could almost use the same summary I used for a chorus line with this one. Okay. (laughs) Uh, In that it's basically all of these privates join the army and go through the meat grinder of becoming trained killers, right? That's pretty much the whole thing. It's about the process of them losing their humanity and becoming able to... Be adapted to war. So that's a little longer than a sentence, but that's a pretty straightforward movie in a certain way, which is unusual for Kubrick, I feel like. Absolutely. What is your background with this movie?
0: We sort of discussed this in the Doctor Strangelove episode that I have a very interesting relationship with Stanley Kubrick (laughs) and his work. Um, I, I, I'm perhaps not as fond of his films as other cinephiles. I, I certainly respect everything that he's made, but there are very few of his films that I like would actively seek out to watch or rewatch. Um, look, 2001 is a masterpiece, but you know, I owned Clockwork Orange and hated it so much that I gave it away. (laughs) Um, it's funny in preparation for this, I was doing a little bit of research and you know, everyone talks about the shining being the greatest horror movie ever made and all this and the scariest movie ever. And I don't think it is like, it's (laughs) I don't find it scary. It's good. Like I'm not saying it's a bad film, but I, you know, it doesn't really do anything for me. And on top of all that, I hate war movies. So it's like, okay, take a filmmaker who you don't particularly love making a film in a genre that you actively dislike um, needless to say, this was not a film that I had really uh, seeked out before this viewing. Sure. Um, but for whatever reason, I was uh, it was on sale on iTunes recently. And because it was sort of the one Kubrick movie of that period that I hadn't seen, I, mm-hmm. I bought it when it was on sale. And it seemed like a good option for the show. And so we finally watched it.
1: Yeah. Um, well, and and helpfully, you know, you're... Uh... Your wife and child were not present. They were away. So yes, that, but it was like the perfect timing to to actually watch.
0: It was it was the perfect time. Part of that was because I thought that the movie was like two and a half hours long. Because I guess oh. in my mind, all war movies are like super long. Um, yeah. So I was like, oh, this is good that I have the house to myself. I can stay up late if I need to. And it's not; it's only two hours. But yes, I had the house to myself, so I could have this, you know, sound cranked up, so that Arlie Army could shout at me for forty-five minutes um, <laughs> in the loudest. But yeah, what what about you? What's your relationship with the film?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know when I first saw this movie, but I think it was probably sometime in university. Mm. And I feel like I may have even owned it on DVD at some point. But definitely, you know, it was a movie I I liked at that age, right? But Mm. that was, I feel like, when I was sort of discovering Kubrick and got really wrapped up in it. I feel like I, I probably watched it around the same time that I watched other Vietnam movies, right? Like Apocalypse Now and Platoon and all of those right. sort of like classic Vietnam war movies. And I haven't really watched it since then. So that's mm. sort of where I'm coming from is like, I have this memory of it being, we'll actually get to this, but I think I said on this podcast, I was like, yeah, it's like one of the more accessible Stanley <laughs> Yes, movies. I believe that's... <laughs> And that was my memory of it. You
0: know? Yeah, and I and I think you also were the one that convinced me to because you're like, oh, I think you're gonna really like it. Like it's, it's really? of Did all I of the Co- I think so. I think you convinced me that like of all the Kubrick movies, I think it's really up your alley. Uh, yeah. Spoiler alert: it's it's not. Um,
1: yeah. But I mean, like, I I guess I didn't. I hadn't put together that you don't like war movies. So like, I feel like I wouldn't have recommended it if I <laughs> if I knew that. But. Compared to some of his other movies that can be very obtuse, like 2001 is is an amazing movie, but it is very, like, what is this movie about? Like, what, you have to really dig in and think about it, and there's a lot going on, whereas this movie has a thesis, and the thesis, I think, is pretty clear, and it it Uh. kind of... Yeah, well, well, okay, we'll yeah, yeah, we're
0: going to unpack that, but
1: yeah, yeah. yes, but no, I
0: would. I, yeah. I, I agree. Perhaps saying it's his most approachable is not the right term. It is his right. least obtuse film. Yes. It, yes, it is, and it's his most, perhaps like traditional in a sense, conventional. The right, totally conventional. Yeah, that's the right word I would use. Totally. Yeah, certainly his most conventional of this film. period. Of, right? Because there's that, obviously, yeah, sort
1: of you know, there's his some earliest of his earlier fir- movies, but like from this era, I think it's by far his most conventional movie. And I think that's what I was thinking of when I was like, yeah, yeah, it's his most accessible film, which is not true, (laughs) I don't think, at all. It's a really aggressive film, but it is working within... That's one word for it. Yeah. It's working within the conventions of war movies, to a certain extent, and kind of playing off of them in a way that you're like, if you've seen those other movies, you can maybe kind of, like, get what he's getting at a little bit. And, you know, like, The Shining, 2001, Clockwork Orange, all of them are really interesting movies that i respect a lot and also maybe one of the great things about them is that you could argue about them for hours and never come to a a complete conclusion about what it's all about what various points of the movie mean all of that so this movie i don't think is quite the same in terms of that for better or worse (laughs)
0: totally yeah well, let's actually talk about what the movie is about to that end. Uh, yeah. So this is the synopsis that we got from the... I sort of consider it to be iconic. If you were of the age when DVD was a thing, although these were also released on VHS I, in the similar packaging, but I vividly remember all of his... I think it was called like the Essential Stanley Kubrick or the Stanley Kubrick classical, and mm-hmm. it was like a
1: white case with a blue strip across the top. And it was released in 2001. Which is also kind of just like a fun, yeah, you know, yeah, a, a I, I'm sure little, they were playing off of that. with Yeah, all totally. The marketing.
0: And the reason we're going DVD is because I looked up the VHSs and every VHS cover I found had no plot description at all. It was just a series <laughs> of quotes about how great the movie is. Mm. It has a wonderful tagline on the cover that says, in Vietnam, the wind doesn't blow. It sucks. It's
1: a terrible, terrible I, tagline for this it has, movie. Has,
0: yeah. It I, I don't, sounds
1: like it should be the tagline for Stripes or... Yeah. Good yeah. Morning Vietnam or something. Something I don't something know cheeky. what the hell it has to do with this movie, but, uh, but there yeah, you go. Anyway. So.
0: Yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> so here's the official plot synopsis. A superb ensemble cast falls in for action in Stanley Kubrick's brilliant saga about the Vietnam War and the dehumanizing process that turns people into trained killers. Joker, Matthew Modine... Animal Mother, Adam Baldwin. Gomer, Vincent D'Onofrio. I like that they just call him Gomer, which, like, yep, nobody... Co- That's not what he is called in the film, but anyway. 8-Ball, oh, yeah. Dorian Harwood, Harewood, Cowboy, Arliss Howard, and more are all plunged into a boot camp hell pit bull by a leather-lung drill instructor, Lee Ermi, who views the would-be devil dogs as grunts, maggots, or something less. The action is savage, the story is unsparing, the dialogue spiked with scathing humor. Full Metal Jacket, from its rigors of basic training to its nightmare of combat in Huey City, scores a cinematic direct hit.
1: How do you feel about that?
0: Not great. (laughs) I mean, it's not inaccurate, but I feel like it's
1: missing the point somehow. Oh, interesting, interesting. Uh, Yeah, I think we're going to have to talk about what this movie is all about, but... Uh yeah I mean, the thing that strikes me is the order in which they list the actors because it's an odd combination yeah. of actors. I feel like Eight Ball, for example, doesn't even really speak that much in the movie. no, and Animal Mothers like introduced way late in the movie yeah way so later yeah it's just a it's a it's a it's weird it kind of jumbles them all together, but I actually think it's not bad in terms of a summary of what this movie's all about. I think it's actually a really simple movie. It's a really straightforward movie. Yes, the plot
0: of the film is very straightforward. And right. based on a little bit of research and we'll obviously like dig into this a bit more, but like it's based on a book and the book is split into, I think, like three acts more or less. And the film is essentially just taking two of those acts or like kind of combining Act two and three into the second right. half of the movie because you've got the first what is it forty five minutes or so all take place at the training in Fort Paris. And mm-hmm. then we transition to Vietnam to see, you know, sort of what happens post-training. Structurally, it's a very s- straightforward story, which, as we sort of alluded to, is not necessarily par for the course for Mr. Kubrick. But I think that that doesn't necessarily mean that the film itself is straightforward.
1: Yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. We'll dig into it, but let's talk a little bit about the background of this movie. Like, Yeah,
0: how did where did this come from? Because, I, you know, I, the thing I know about Kubrick is that f- for all his genius, he, he doesn't like to write original stories. He basically right. is always looking for some sort of material that he's going to adapt into the story he wants to tell.
1: Exactly, yeah, totally. That's one of the sort of through lines, I feel like, of his career for the most part. And, you know, this is no exception. So as you said, it's based on a book by a guy named Gustav Hasford, I believe. It was a book called *The Short Timers*, which was published in 1979. And it's it like you said, it's very very similar to this movie in a lot of ways in terms of what the content is. First part's all about training at Paris Island, and the second and third parts take place in Vietnam. Both of them, I believe, you know, this is just Wikipedia, but from what I, I read, it sounds like both of them involve a showdown with a sniper. So it makes okay. a lot of sense that you might combine those two sections into one showdown with a sniper but yeah it was adapted by screenwriter michael herr who was a former war correspondent and also the author of another vietnam war novel called dispatches as well as apocalypse now
0: (laughs) yeah i believe he so my understanding is that and if you're not super familiar with apocalypse now basically the original screenplay was written by john melius the disastrous, like, situation of filming that movie, they then came up with this idea of, like, having this voiceover, and Michael Herr was brought in to write the voiceover mm. for all of the Martin Sheen characters' dialogue. So the, he does not that he didn't write sense. the rest of the screenplay, he just wrote... He just made it all make
1: sense.
0: <laughs> he was, yeah, exactly. He was the one who was brought in to, like, okay, we gotta put this together somehow. So, that's my understanding, anyway.
1: Yeah, totally. And so, in terms of, like, what attracted Kubrick to this source material. I was listening to some interviews with him and he basically said that the book doesn't have a lot of the kind of heart-to-heart scenes that you usually get in war stories where you know one of the characters will open up about their father or their wife back home or something like that, right? And the book doesn't have any of that. And Kubrick mm. respected that it didn't try to ingratiate itself with the audience. That's the word that he keeps using again and again. Right. He doesn't like movies that ingratiate themselves with the audience and didn't want to do that. And so he saw that in this source material. This was one quote I found where he said, the question becomes, are you giving them, the audience, something to make them a little happier or are you putting in something that is inherently true to the material? Are people behaving the way we all really behave or are they behaving the way we would like them to behave? that was sort of his, the way that he sees the characters in this movie. Because, you know, as we all know, sometimes you don't say all the things you wished you said, and you don't open up and you don't process your emotions and maybe especially in the context of war. And so I think that was the thing that he sort of latched onto in this book. Mm. Another interesting sort of aspect of this movie is that there are a lot of new faces. Um, So, on the production side, you have Douglas Milsom is the DP of this movie. this is his first feature film as a DP. Wow. Which is pretty incredible, I think. It's one of those sort of real highlights of the film. Absolutely. Um, he worked with John Alcott, who was Kubrick's former DP on A Clockwork Orange and The Shining. Okay. So that's sort of how he found his way in. Very similarly, the editor, also first-time editor for a oh, feature wow. film. He worked on previous Kubrick works, I think in particular The Shining, as a sound assistant, and then also helped him cut the TV versions of some of his films Ah. and sort of uh, kept pushing. Impressed him. (laughs) He he was let in. Yeah. Interesting. This is this sort of transition point of these new people coming onto the crew. The other crew member that's worth noting is the composer of the film. Did you recognize the name Abigail Mead?
0: No, and I was like, oh, I would have just, because he worked with Wendy Carlos for the last couple films, I just assumed, oh, he's going to use her again, and then, right. then he doesn't, so I was like, oh, interesting, okay. So
1: Abigail Mead is a pseudonym for his daughter, Vivian hmm. Kubrick, <laughs> who also okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, did documentaries about him, yep. she was also a filmmaker, yep. but yeah, she was a composer, and this is her first film as a composer. Uh, interesting. So again, just... This is this weird sort of front-door kind of film that is bringing in all these new voices. The same is true when you look at the cast. So Matthew Modine had definitely done some work before this. One of his better-known roles was in this movie Birdie, which is also about Vietnam vets, but not. I don't think it takes place in Vietnam. I think it's more sort of like what happens when you come home. He was also in some other really silly-looking movies called... One was Streamers, which is a Robert Altman movie. Okay. And another one called Private School, which seems to be like a teen sex comedy basically. Ah, of course. <laughs> you also have uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, of course, who right. was at this point was basically working as a bouncer and I think basically got into the casting process through a friend and then got the part, which is amazing and thank God cuz he's a good amazing actor.
0: Yeah, oh, he's incredible in this movie. <clears throat> Arguably the best part of the movie, but we'll get into it. I think um so. But he apparently was, like, close with Matthew Modine, and Matthew Modine had auditioned for this. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, you should absolutely, like, send in a tape for this. Because I guess, like, because Kubrick really wanted fresh faces, they encouraged, like, any working actor, send a tape in, we're going to look at everybody. Um And there was a meme, like, a video that went around a few years ago of this guy auditioning for... This movie have you seen this video? I don't know it if is I like have or not.: Oh my God, it is hella- It's like, "Hello, Mr. Kubrick. Oh, it's like the guy is like super Yes yeah, yeah you, yes, you remember I have it seen now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Good day, Mr. Kubrick. You will view many different faces, see many people. You will find in me the finest actor in the lot, the most beautifully trained, the most capable. I ain't going to walk again. We'll put it in the show notes. You absolutely have to watch this guy. Like, it is the most self-serious, most ridiculous (laughs) audition tape you will ever see. Spoiler alert, guy didn't get the part. Um, But this is how D'Onofrio, who was like, yeah, just basically working as a bouncer at the time, he ended up in the film. Mm -hmm. And like you said, like, thank goodness he did.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I think he he was doing stage work at that time, but this was his big break. The other person, of course, that it, this is sort of the famous story, I feel like, of this movie is Arlie Ermey, right, who plays the drill sergeant. Um, and it's interesting because I feel like people act like he was never in anything before this, but he actually was. He was pretty involved in show business in general. Oh, um, he, I didn't know that. Yeah, so he was a military advisor on films before this. But he had also actually played a drill sergeant in a movie prior to this uh, oh, in okay. uh, The Boys in Company C, which is like not a movie I've ever seen or I don't know really much about. But it's another Vietnam War movie where he plays a drill sergeant. Go figure. Huh. And he'd been in a couple other things before. Even when he was younger, I think he got cast in commercials and, and stuff like that. I think he was right. in a Gene commercial. So he was already kind of, you know, floating around, but he was originally, of course, brought on as a military advisor on this film, and slowly uh, that role was recast with R. Lee Ermey in it. Uh, But after they saw him deliver the kinds of speeches that you see in this movie, basically, he was uh, tasked with dressing down some of the extras to kind of, you know, weed them out and see who might be the right fit. And they took video of it, and Kubrick loved it so much that they not only recast him but they just started transcribing the things he was saying and adding it into the script
0: <laughs> wild so wild for me he's the other <clears throat> sort of highlight of the film is i mean yeah. as as much as what you have to go through with him can be said to be a highlight and we'll again we'll get into it but his performance which You know, there are people who would maybe dismiss that performance. I I feel like he wasn't nominated for an Oscar that year because I think what people were saying is like, well, he's just playing his real life. Yeah, like that. But, which is not entirely a fair assessment, but like, regardless, it is a jaw dropping performance that he gives. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Whether or not it's him acting, as it were, it's still incredible.
1: Yeah, it's almost like saying, oh, well, that person's played that on stage before, so, you know, that's basically mm-hmm. not even acting. It's like, yeah, exactly. if you ever see interviews with Arlie Ermey, he is not that guy when, you know, no. when he's, like, not on. And yes, he may have done that before at Paris Island, because he actually worked at Paris Island, where this film takes place. Um, so he may have done that there as part of his job, but it's still a role that he's playing, you know? Right. So anyway. Have you, see, have you seen him in other stuff? I mean you have I know you have I, I but have do you remember what you've seen him in? I I know that he did the voice of the army men in Toy Story. Yes. That's that's I think what I have seen him in other than this.
0: You've also seen him in a little movie called 7. Wow. He's like the police sergeant that's Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman's boss.
1: Huh? i have totally i totally forgot that that's amazing i'm gonna have to but again he's much more
0: subdued yeah and like to the point where you almost don't necessarily put it together that it's him and then i don't know if you've actually seen this movie but the thing that i always remember him from is in the remake of the texas chainsaw massacre oh he plays (laughs) he plays like Leatherface's, i guess dad or whatever like i don't Oh, but, you know, that's bringing a bit of a bell. Or, the, like, yeah. the sheriff. Yeah, okay. right? Because, like, the bad guy. The guy who, like, owns the house that Leatherface is living in. So he's essentially, like, the villain in the Texas Chainsaw huh. remake. Fascinating. He's actually a
1: pretty decent actor. Yeah, with more uh, range than I think he gets credit for. Too. Yeah, you yeah, know, exactly. he does this so, so well that I feel like he's just typecast forever with that. For um, sure. So some other facts about this film. This movie is shot entirely in the United Kingdom which is which insane. Is, it's absolutely bonkers. So shot at Pinewood Studios of course, but also at a Royal Air Force Base up in Swinderby, very British name. <laughs> um, uh, the, that's where like the Paris Island stuff takes place right and for Vietnam they used uh, places within London.
0: <laughs> so yeah, which is nuts.
1: yeah, the Isle of Dogs is where a lot of the stuff in the sort of city takes place before they get to the rattle right. scenes. And then the battle scenes are all shot at the Becton Gasworks. Those were condemned, so they were able to basically just, you know, knock out a wall, blow them up, like, do whatever they wanted to them.
0: So much flaming concrete.
1: And they were apparently chosen because the architecture is from, like, a similar era to when Huey was built. It's interesting, too, because it's, like, I
0: guess because of war movies, like, in my mind, Vietnam is jungle? Right, yeah, that's so always was the weird to see, show right? Like every, you know, Apocalypse Now, Platoon, like all yep. of these movies are sort of set in the jungles of Vietnam. Right. And so to see a city is just like it's kind of arresting, and just like to see these different visuals, but to think that it's also just London is wild. <laughs> Yeah. And I and heard I, that they would like, in some scenes, they would have to add extra smoke because if they didn't, like, if the smoke cleared, you could literally see, like, Big Ben in the distance or
1: whatever. So, to- totally. They had to be very strategic about the sets. And they, they also used a lot of things like just putting in shipping containers and stuff like that and stacking right. them up around the edges of the set so you can't see what's behind it. But the other thing, of course, with these sets is that they had to dress them. So they ended up buying 120,000 uh, pounds, as in money. uh, Pound sterling, yeah. Yes, of tropical foliage, including 200 palm trees from Spain. They had to add 100,000 plastic plants from Hong Kong. They had six Belgian tanks barged across the English Channel for these scenes. They also recruited 5,000 members of the Vietnamese immigrant community in London for for all of this. So, yeah, a huge amount of effort, obviously, went into transforming what you see on screen into some version of Vietnam. Total budget of the movie was about $16.5 uh, million. At least that was the reported amount at the time. More recent estimates look like it's probably more like $30 million, which means wow. it, it didn't actually do all that well in terms of how it played out at the box office. Of course, Kubrick famously... Does a lot of takes, <laughs> um, and to so just give yeah. you a sense of the scale of that. The editor had 120 hours, or about 750,000 feet of footage to work with. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that god. gives you like an aneurysm. Yeah, um, yeah, it's I, too I mean, much. <laughs> thankfully, at least at least Kubrick was working with him, so it wasn't just like right. all on him to figure out what to use. But yeah. And it also, you know, based on what you
0: hear of Kubrick of like, do it again, do it again, presumably yep. you could just go to the last take and that's the one
1: you're going to use. But I who think knows? that's right. I think that's right. I mean, from everything I was reading about why he does takes, it seems like it's because he's mostly frustrated with actors. Um, hmm. And, he, you know, the way he tells it is like actors don't come to set knowing their lines and having done their homework, basically. Right. And so he just kept going until he got whatever he wanted out of them and then was done. But some actors, it wasn't like that. You know, like, Arlie mm. Ermey, of course, apparently came to set very prepared and was, they wouldn't <laughs> do as many takes. Um, right. I heard, like, it was generally, like, three or four takes and
0: then right. that was it, which was, you know, unheard of on a Kubrick set.
1: Right. But, I you know, I would take all of that with a grain of salt because I think, as we know from you know, like the documentary about The Shining, he doesn't treat his actors very well. Um, <laughs> That's one way to so, put it, Nate. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, in particularly in that movie, and there is, of course, like a gendered component of it, right? But even even with the men in this movie, he would be dissatisfied with what they were doing as actors on set and would do take after take after take after take, but he also refused to communicate, basically, what he actually wanted out of them. So right. he would just say, better, more <laughs> intense, things like that, more, better, and, <sighs> yeah. and, and then expect them to kind of figure out what that meant, which is a lot to ask of someone. Um, one of the things that bugs me about this movie and bugs me about Kubrick in general is that there's a lot of sort of film bro vibes about all of it, mm-hmm. right? of people being like, oh man, he was such a perfectionist, like everything is so intentional and it's so great that he did all of these takes because he wanted to get everything just so and it's like well actually maybe he could have just been like a a better people person (laughs) you know like and actually like learned how to communicate with people because guess what that's actually part of the job of being a director so i don't want to valorize that stuff too much
0: no and i think this is what has always driven me crazy about kubrick is just like for me anyways you know I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I'm better than Stanley Kubrick. I am not. And I do think that he has made some incredible works. And certainly within even the works I dislike, there are moments that I do think are brilliant. But there's a bit of this idea of just like, you can be told someone's a genius so many times and then you start to go, okay, but why? Like I've never really been able to understand the why of it and that's really what I want to dig into into this movie is like mm-hmm. why did he even make this movie but <laughs> yeah, we'll, let's, we'll talk about that next but yeah I think there's just sort of I, I'll never forget when I was watching I can't remember which movie it was but it was a David Fincher movie I believe it was in the commentary and he's talking about something and he just sort of says like people people like to read a lot of meaning into this shot I just thought it looked cool Right. And like that sort of opened up my brain. And like, I was just like, you know, how many people have spent hours analyzing, like The Shining, for example? There's that whole room 247 or whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah. Which is like this two hour documentary of people like over analyzing The Shining. And I'm like, maybe he just like thought that the carpet looked cool and he used it. Like, yeah. Or, oh yeah, every mistake is like 100% intentional. And it's like, right. or maybe he just made a mistake and you right. got, like reading. I don't know. There's just something to it that, to me anyway, that perfectionism I don't want to say it doesn't seem warranted but like I've never had this sort of emotional connection with any of his works to go like yeah it took 147 takes but man what he got was worth it like I never really have felt that with any of his films a lot of his films kind of leave me cold in that Mm -hmm. like I admire the technical precision but they don't do anything for me emotionally. And again, I'm really destroying any credit that I have here, but like it's it's kind of how I feel about Wes Anderson's movies too. Yeah. Like I, I admire I, the I, precision, but like they they don't really do much for me. It's a really good analogy.
1: Yeah. Well, so it's interesting. I feel the same way about that. I like Wes Anderson better than you do, I think. But I actually mm-hmm. over the years have soured a bit on him as well. And it is partly for exactly what you're saying, which is that I don't feel any emotional connection to his movies, really. The only one that I I love adamantly still is the Royal Bombs, and it's because mm. the actors in that have enough leeway to act and bring out all of the amazing things that they add to the movies, whereas totally. after that, they get so mannered that you, you kind of lose that. And I do think Kubrick definitely has that same aspect of it, Right where it doesn't feel like he is really allowing the actors to bring a whole lot to the films. Well,
0: yeah. what's weird is I think, like, it's why 2001 is probably my favorite Kubrick movie because, yeah. like, the actors
1: kind of are superfluous. Like, there's, there is... They're just is, there to witness what's there, happening.
0: Yeah, the, the <laughs> there's no plot, really, or, like, what little plot there is is kind of, like, convoluted. It's just, like, it's beautiful imagery and, like, yeah. Kubrick... Is like he makes beautiful images. So like when that's just what it is, it works. But it's when there's more to it that it just starts to fall apart. So okay, well let's let's get into this because this is the thing I really want to dig into because uh, I didn't really enjoy the movie. I, I will yeah. say I do think the first forty five minutes, which you know mm-hmm. is forty five minutes of Arlie Ermy yelling at his platoon and by association us the audience. It is incredibly affecting. You're literally getting beaten up for like <laughs> you're, you're, almost as if someone has wrapped a, a piece of soap in the towel and beat you with it for 45 yeah. minutes. That is certainly powerful. But again, and, and I'm framing this all with an understanding that I don't particularly like war movies, mostly mm-hmm. because I feel like they're all doing the same thing. It's like everyone has the thesis of like war is bad discuss like well they do in the 70s and the six, you know yes i guess that's more what it is i don't really yeah. like vietnam war movies there have been war movies about world war ii or world war one that i do find at least interesting mm-hmm. all quiet on the western front which came out last year which is you know now the third adaptation of that book right that was a film that i actually found extremely powerful because mm-hmm. of the way in which it humanized the quote-unquote villains Because it's told from the perspective of Germany, who are obviously not the victors of that war. And so, like, that at least was interesting to me because it, like, it, again, it kind of humanizes the people that you have, that have been dehumanized through media for decades now. Mm -hmm. But with this movie, I was trying to understand what Kubrick was trying to say. Like, yeah. And not not only that, knowing that this was the film that comes out after Apocalypse Now, which, you know, was so heralded as this like brilliant Vietnam film this comes out in the 80s which is insane like in my mind it's a 70s film because like that's the kind of movies that were being made in the 70s but no it comes out in the late 80s which is wild yeah especially when you consider other movies of the period like you think of 80s movies and they're all like
1: horror movies and like sexy teen romps but like like, so I, I wrote down what was nominated for best picture this year right okay Uh, Just for exactly the point of comparison that you're making, The Last Emperor won. Yeah. Okay. Broadcast News. Okay. Fatal Attraction came out the same year as this movie. Cool. Hope and Glory, which is interesting, another war movie, which I thought was British, but um, anyway, and Moonstruck. Okay. So, like, Mm. that's what. Moonstruck is a great movie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, good movies. But all of that is coming out when this movie came out, which 100% feels 10 years older than it is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's just. So, uh, but all this is to say, like, as I'm watching it, I'm like, okay. Obviously, I don't think that Kubrick is pro war, (laughs) but I just, like. To me, his thesis, whatever his thesis is, and maybe I'm just unclear as to what his thesis is, but to me, his thesis isn't different enough from all of the other Vietnam War movies that I've already seen to warrant doing another one. And I know that, like, I I watched the sort of special feature on the iTunes edition of this. They have, like, a short 30-minute documentary. It's very, like, EPK kind of. It's not particularly strong. But, you know, they say, like, Kubrick, you know, what he does is he waits for everybody else to do something in a genre, and then he comes out and makes the best one. And I'm not sure that I agree. I don't don't think think that this this is is the best best Vietnam War movie. And, like, lots of people... I I can't remember who the filmmaker was, but there was some filmmaker who says, like, the first 45 minutes are the greatest movie ever made. Right. And I I don't know that I would agree it's the greatest movie ever made. It's certainly the best part of this movie, though. If the movie had ended after the Paris Island bit, I could get on board of being like, this is really interesting. I'm really into this. I appreciate this. I see why everybody thinks this is so brilliant. But the second half of the movie, like, it doesn't do anything that groundbreaking or that different. Like make me go, huh, yeah, this is this is a masterpiece. I don't yeah. know, what do you think? Am I completely off base here? No, like? no,
1: I, I think that I broadly would agree with you on the first half versus the second half, and we can talk more about those soon, but just going back to what you were saying about, like, what is this movie about? What is Kubrick's take on this that's different than other people? I think what he is really drilling it down into, this word actually comes up even in the description on the back of the DVD cover, but It's this issue of dehumanization, right? Right. Of, like, what do you have to do to a person to survive or even thrive in the context of war? And you see all these people dealing with it differently throughout the movie, and the first half is all about taking away the humanity of these kids, right? Who are supposed to be, like, in their late teens. They're younger than we are. And so the very first shots, right are of those guys getting their heads shaved, right? Mm. So that they all start to look more alike. And a fun fact about that, apparently they're trying to shoot this scene and it wasn't quite working right, so they asked Arlie Ermi about it, and he went and talked to one of his army guys and found out that actually what they use is they use the clippers that you use to shave poodles to do that. Job. Oh, shit. And so that's what they ended up using, right? Which just, again, it just reinforces this exact message right of like right look you're just like they're now treated like animals right you're just part of this machinery now and we're gonna shear mm. you like a sheep basically right so that you're now ready to receive the, the sort of uh, verbal assault the physical assault to to become a tool to become a weapon right one of the scenes that really drives this home for me is in the training scene where Arlie Ermey I should start calling him by his character name Sergeant Hartman. He is talking about some of the greatest Marines that have ever lived and, you know, the greatest marksmen, right? And the people he's talking about are assassins, right? They're terrorists.
0: Yeah, because he's talking about, like, Oswald and stuff, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. Those individuals showed what one motivated Marine and his rifle can do. And before
0: you ladies leave my island, you will all be able to do the same thing.
1: That's the thing, is that they're taking the act of killing completely out of context and saying, doesn't matter whether he killed a president or he killed a, a, a Vietnamese soldier. Same thing. That's the message that Sergeant Hartman is trying to tell them. And then we see exactly how that goes with Private Pyle, right? And he becomes a killer, but in a way that is like unpredictable. But I think that that's the core thesis is that in order to survive in war, people have to lose their humanity and the latter half of the movie doesn't do a very good job of continuing that thesis until the very 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 end and yeah. to me the ending almost makes it work but there is just this like half hour chunk where they're kind of wandering around and he's injecting other stuff into the movie that doesn't totally work for me and that's that's i think my problem with it overall i
0: think to that point like part of the issue is that For that thesis to work, you almost need all of the men who go through the training to then be in the second half, but they aren't. You get Joker, and then he eventually runs into um, Cowboy. Cowboy, but otherwise, we're introduced to a bunch of new characters. And I guess the assumption is like, well, they've gone through the same. Like you talked about this earlier. Like one of the things that. Kubrick didn't want to do is sort of like <laughs> to give the backstory of all of these people so that God you start to like forbid care
1: about anyone.
0: <laughs> yeah. But a- again, I think for that thesis of like to show how these humans are broken down and become trained killers and not only that you then ha- the person that we follow is Joker who is this character who's kind of an enigma and yeah, and you don't really under, like he he's got the peace sign, but also he says, like, born to kill. And right. so it's, he's like the dichotomy in and of himself. And he's not there as a marksman or as a, he's there as a journalist. Right. Like he wants to photograph and document
1: the war. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's just I a, think like part of the thing with that as well is that they're taking away their humanity, but they're also all kind of building up these other personas. Right. Mm-hmm. Like private Joker. Right. So he has to be the funny guy. And one of the interesting things about this movie is that none of the jokes that he makes are very funny, right? Like, (laughs) as an audience member, you're not laughing at what he says, but he's always trying so hard to make a joke. And I think that might be intentional. I don't think he's supposed to be particularly funny, but he's just always trying. And that's the level that you engage with him as a character. Like, you don't get to know anything else about him, basically. You just get to see him be Private Joker, right? Put on that mask. And then you maybe get a little bit of a glimpse of something else when he's trying to help Private Pyle just survive boot camp. And you see that he's actually kind of has this nurturing side. But it doesn't, in the end, I think one of the things this movie's trying to tell us is that nurturing side actually doesn't serve him very well in this context. Right. And this is where the message is a little bit complicated from what Kubrick is saying is like, is he, you know, against war or pro war? I can't tell. Is because I think what he's saying is war will kill people like that or or just destroy people like that. And there's no Mm -hmm. room for it. And I don't think that he's advocating, therefore, people should be weapons. But I think he's saying that that's kind of just what happens, is that the people who aren't weapons don't survive, either because they're killed or because they break down. And it's a weird message, but I think it's mostly there. And I think most of the movie does a good job of supporting that. But then there's this chunk in the middle where he's in Vietnam being a journalist and you're kind of like, I don't know what this is about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about those two acts then. So let's yeah. let's let's talk about act one, which, as we mentioned, is sort of the training montage, for lack right. of a better... It's basically like the entire first act is, is a training montage, more or less.
1: Yeah. So, it, I mean, it's funny that these two acts, of all the movies, to say that this reminds me of, it reminds me a bit of My Fair Lady... Oh, okay. in, that, in that the first act is all about the transformation, and the second right. act is all about the consequences of that transformation.
0: Right, okay. And, Interesting.
1: And so the first act is just like, you know, learning how to speak like a proper English woman. <laughs> you know, you have these people coming in, and it is literally the whole thing is like a training montage. I was thinking about it, and I was like, this is more like a poem than a novel where it's just Mm. rhythm. It's just this cutting back and forth. A lot of the musical aspect of it is diegetic, right? It's them singing these songs. And you just keep returning to the same things. That's the other thing that reminded me of poem is like, you know, you keep coming back to them jogging and singing. You keep coming back to the obstacle course. You keep coming back to them at the barracks at night. It's just this kind of rhythm that you keep going through and then it's sort of slowly progressing forward where you see pile failing and then things escalating between him and the sergeant and then eventually him and the other cadets or whatever privates
0: it's remarkable how relentless it is because basically like the movie starts like it just starts <laughs> darts like totally. they, sh- they get their head shaved they end up at the barracks and then the abuse begins yep. and I believe it goes for about 17 minutes before we get our first sort of like respite and then I think it goes for another like 15 minutes or so and we get another sort of like pause on, on it and mm-hmm. then finally like at the 45 minute mark is when we transition to Vietnam so It's arguably some of the best editing of all time because of the way that it manages to balance the sheer level of abuse from their sergeant to then taking a break to sort of give you a second to sort of like catch your breath. And you have that beautiful moment with Pyle and Joker, which that's the sort of first moment of like real dialogue between characters. There are a couple moments where the sergeant is like, ask it, what's your name? Private or whatever. But like an actual like dialogue sequence doesn't happen until again, it's like either the 17 or 30 minute mark. Mm -hmm. It's kind of what we talked about with horror movies and thrillers and like how horror movies have that thing of like constantly ratcheting up the tension and then they got to release it so that they can ratchet up more like this film does that arguably better than any other piece of work that I've ever seen. It's totally. genuinely remarkable, and I hated every minute of it, like, yeah. because it was so visceral, like, it was so hard to watch. Yeah. And, like, there's no violence, well, until There's no the blood end, and but, gore until the end. Th- yeah. yeah. There's yeah. no blood and gore until the end, but it's just, it is awful to sit through, and I'm just like, why would anybody put themselves through it? And to think that these poor guys, knowing Kubrick and his love of multiple takes, I was just sitting there going, good God, like, This must have been, like, months of their life was just literally showing up to work every day to be yelled at by this terrifying man. (laughs) Yeah. And then uh, be yelled at by another terrifying man behind the camera.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, or at least, you know, have snide remarks made about you. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There was one story that I remember, I think, I can't remember which actor it was, but, you know, they're on, like, the 30th take, and one of them is like, oh, God, what does he want? And Kubrick hears him say this, and he oh, just no. he just pops out from behind the camera and goes, "How about better acting?" <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, what a dick! <laughs> yeah, yeah, this guy, He's an asshole. Um, but yeah, no, I mean it's incredibly intense. I think one of the things they're relying on is that, for all the abuse—and it is abuse—that Arlie Ermi is sort of like lobbing at them, the dialogue is i'm sure like nothing else people had heard in cinemas at the time
0: i mean it's hard to this is one of those films that absolutely without question suffers from the fact that it was so groundbreaking and sort of set a standard moving forward that would go on to be parodied by the simpsons and and toy story like of all things like it that i can it's very very hard to look back on it knowing everything that's come after it that to sort of put it within the context of what it must have been like to see for the first time when it first came out. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it it must have been unlike anything people had ever heard before.
1: Right, because it's like, there is a level of creativity in what he's saying to them that is just like, this is where that sort of film bro vibe kind of comes in a little bit too, is that it's just so outrageous, the things that he's saying to them, right? He just is throwing around racial slurs and homophobic remarks and all of these things that just kind of made any any semblance of you know all that stuff was always below the surface or not always but often below the surface in movies and kind of Mm -hmm. played out in stereotypes and prejudices and things like that and he just makes it all it's all on the surface and we're just going to be totally explicit about it and put it all out there and it must have really freaked people out but also you know again the level of creativity combined with that is just so unusual you know and so i think he's really relying on that to get you through how kind of horrific it is you know yeah so well th- there's a, it, a level of enter of perverse entertainment to it totally yeah.
0: but ironically like again i would say this is far more horrifying than the shining to me anyway yeah I find this much more disturbing and difficult to watch than
1: I ever found that film to be. Yeah. And and also, I think the first half of this movie, to me, is more horrifying than the second half of this movie.
0: Oh, 100%. 100%. Which is really I, interesting. I,
1: I, yeah. When they get to Vietnam, all of the air is out of the balloon, in my opinion. And it starts yeah. to feel more just like a another war movie, in some ways. The urban setting makes it feel a little different, but it's kind of a lot of the same sort of tropes until they get to the very end. But it's interesting even, like, what the simpsons takes from this right um, right I, fe- I feel like the stuff that's parodied twice in the simpsons is the jogging scenes and yes. just you know that that sort of rolling shot right that like slow dolly shot of them just jogging and they stay perfectly in the same place in the frame and you have arlie Ermy jogging alongside them leading them in a call and response song right and the Simpsons do that in Bart the General, and they also do that in Sweet Seymour Skinner's badass song, um, <laughs> where Skinner's the one leading it and is very upset by how rude these songs are and makes them change the lyrics. I've been in Paris, France. Had a big hole in a Wait, wait, wait. Who's peddling that level of filth? <laughs> oh, mercy. Um... <laughs> I, I love that episode.
0: I love the idea of Skinner being Arlie Ermy because they couldn't be more diametrically opposed. totally, like, yeah, he's totally different.
1: Total polar opposites. Yeah, other than the fact that he's also a hard ass. Um, well, yes. But, but yeah, very different temperaments. And then the other thing that, that does, from this section, that does make it into The Simpsons, which we've covered on this show, is from mm-hmm. Dead Putting Society, which you know is mostly a parody of The Karate Kid. But there's the scene that you really love. No, come on, give your putter a name. What? Come on, give it a name. Mr. Putter. No, oh, your putter's name is Charlene. Did you know that was a parody of this movie at the time? No, it wasn't. It, literally, when the
0: when I was watching Full Metal Jacket, and when they say you have to name your gun, what's this weapon's name, Private pile?
1: Sir, the private's weapon's name is Charlene, sir.
0: I literally had one of those like Eureka moments of <laughs> like, oh my god, this this is that's where that came from. Like it's it's it's. It's such a throwaway line that, like, yeah. had we not discussed it in season one, I don't think I would have even made the connection. But because we had already talked about it, I was like, "That ha- that cannot be a coincidence."
1: Totally, no, no, no. That's I think that's one hundred percent an intentional reference. One of the funny things, I guess, is that like that's actually in the movie is so such a sinister moment mm-hmm. because he tells he basically is like, "This rifle is now your." girlfriend, your wife, you know, whatever, and you're going to go to sleep with it and say a prayer where you're going to have to, like, talk about how much you love your rifle. This is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. Again, it's a my scary moment, right? It, it gets to the sort of underlying dread life. and horror of this whole section, which, of course, ends with Private Pyle losing it, basically.
0: Well, uh, yeah, I want to talk about D'Onofrio because... yeah. Again, outside of Ermy, I think he's generally considered to... Gives the the best performance in the film. It's an mm-hmm. iconic performance. He literally says, like, if it weren't for Stanley Kubrick, I wouldn't be working. Like, his performance in this gets him gigs f- for the rest of time. Yeah. what What is your read on him? Like, what are your thoughts? Because I do think he gives an incredible performance, but I do want to talk about one thing in particular. But I no, before she... we get into that, I just want to get your thoughts on it.
1: He has such an interesting transformation in this movie where he goes from being this soft and childlike character to Mm -hmm. someone who's obviously capable of murder, not even in the context of war, but the transformation is so gradual in some ways that you really buy it, I think. It feels very believable that this same person could be both of those things. In some ways it's even more resonant now, in an mm, era when we yeah. have mass shootings on a yep. regular basis in the United States, especially, you
0: understand why a character like that would snap right, and do right. what he did.
1: And but the, but the performance, I think, is really the key is that he's able to hit all of those different notes where you go from being at some points, you're very sympathetic with him at other points, you kind of understand the frustration that others have. And then he can be downright scary too. And that's, it's pretty incredible, I think, that he can elicit all of those reactions from the audience.
0: Yeah, the image of him giving the trademark Kubrick stare Oof. of just like looking down the, it is yeah, chilling, terrifying. But having said that, it's interesting in this documentary I watched, they talk about his performance and how incredible it is. And then they cut to, what I think is maybe my least favorite moment of this whole section, which is when he sort of says, like, Hi, Joker. And for me, that final section where he finally snaps, there are moments of it that totally work for me, like when he starts reciting, This
1: is my rifle! There are many like it, but this one is
0: mine! That's terrifying, and then obviously when he does finally snap and murder his sergeant is terrifying. But there are a few moments where he's just a little too scenery-chewy for me mm-hmm. and, like, crosses into, like, Hannibal Lecter territory, which, like, in Silence of the Lambs, I'm okay with that. But, like, in this very grounded, realistic movie, for him to be giving, like, movie star villainy just yeah. does—it just feels a little too over-the-top. For Kubrick, being, you know, the perfectionist that he was, I was like, this is a little— Extra for me. However, again, I think across the board, outside of these couple of moments, his performance is remarkable. The scene that still gives me chills is after he's beaten with the soap and he's just writhing in pain, saying how much it hurts. I mean, that just that completely broke me. And
1: then you cut to Joker putting his fingers in his ears. That inter that whole sort of cutting back and forth is is really something yeah i hear what you're saying to me it feels very much in the same family as the shining Mm -hmm. of like what jack nicholson gets to in that movie but the difference being that 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 is a very slow burn movie where he has a whole movie to get to that point and you feel like it's believable and i feel like with d'onofrio he's doing it in a very compressed time frame I think they start to hint at it like after that scene with the soap or, or maybe it's after the scene with a donut. I can't remember, but there's a turning point where essentially he starts being like, I'm going to work harder and yeah. he finds out he's good with the rifle and he is starting to kind of shape up and learn how to do his drills and all this kind of stuff. But like his demeanor changes a lot and you start to be like, this is a little scary. <laughs> and yeah. so for me, by the time you get to the bathroom, I think even the first time when I saw it, I was like, yeah, he clearly snapped, and this is takes it to a kind of supernatural place almost, but it didn't feel totally out of the blue either. But I, I hear what you're saying. It does get to be a little bit, I don't know,
0: just big. Well, and it doesn't help that this is one of those scenes that, again, and we've I've talked about this numerous times of, scenes that were spoiled for me by the AFI 100 sure. uh, TV special. So I, <laughs> yeah. or, and it may not have been the one, it might've been the 100 thrills. I can't remember which, specifically which special it was, but mm-hmm. like I had seen this scene before, not in, in, in its entirety, but obviously like I had seen the, what is your major malfunction? Like all of it. Yeah. So I kind of knew what was coming, which did deflate it a little bit, though not nearly as much as I might've expected. Like it was still like, incredibly intense. And I think what helps is, Actually, Matthew Modine in this scene, the fact that he's like terrified of what's going to happen next.
1: It feels very, really
0: grounded. Yeah, it really helps sell that entire thing. And then not not only that, just I was not really anticipating the level of gore that we were going to get when he finally does die by suicide. <laughs> that was just pretty next level stuff.
1: Yeah, I, I actually came across a fact about how they did that. Which I thought was pretty Mm. interesting. Matthew Modine was actually the one who came up with the idea for this because they were they kept trying to do it with squibs and they couldn't get it to work and they couldn't get it to look right. And so Matthew Modine was like, "Oh, William Friedkin did this thing in To Live and Die in L.A. (laughs) My boy Billy, yeah, our our buddy Billy. And basically, what they did instead of a squib was they they actually launched fake blood and spaghetti at his face. They actually put all of that in a three-foot-long pipe and just like shot it out with pressurized air. And then they cut out a few frames. Interesting. Yeah, but, man, I mean, what an effect, because it really is uh, pretty brutal, even though it is very short. This movie has some gore to it, but it is, for the most part, pretty judicious, I feel like, about how things are deployed. It doesn't feel... Gratuitous necessarily, but it is intense. Like it is supposed to be violent. Yeah. You know? I, but I found
0: this moment much more impactful than any of the. I don't know if it's just because it's been done to death at this point, yeah. but all of the sort of like slow motion sniper shots in the second act, right. they were almost like comical to me. There was a, like a silliness to it that I don't know what it was, but I was just like, okay, this is too much. It comes back to like, what is he trying to say here? What's with the style here? Like, mm-hmm. the the rest of the film is very grounded and almost like at times, it is documentary, like, including... Obviously, there are moments when, like, a documentary crew is literally there. Right. But then to go to this, like, hyper-stylized, super slow motion and, like, close-ups... I don't know. This movie is... That second act, especially... It, yeah. It, it just... There's something about it that isn't working for me. I don't want to say it feels sloppy. hmm I can't put my finger on it. I'm not sure, like, if it's just me and my dislove of war movies and sort of, like, antipathy to Kubrick, but...
1: Well, I think we'll we may find our answer to that question in the second act. But before we okay. go there, I have to ask, did you notice anything strange about this scene? I mean, other than the, the obvious things.
0: Um I mean obviously like the color is mm-hmm. interesting. Like the whole, it's lit with this blue light. It's supposed to be moonlight, obviously. Yeah. It makes um, it kind
1: of surreal for sure. There's that Yeah, it gives that
0: a surreal eeriness. Um no, I don't recall noticing anything different. So,
1: the toilets in the bathroom have no walls around them and are facing each other, just a few, like about a meter apart. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Now that you point that out, yes, I, which I, is I, which
1: I, is like not at all how a real bathroom would be set out. You may not even be allowed to set it up like that, but um, right. But you know, I'm sure it's partly like an aesthetic thing, but Stanley Kubrick said also of this that this was just sort of like one of the few areas where they took some poetic license and he just thought that it was funny and grotesque.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean now that you mentioned it, yeah, you're right, that it like I never clocked that that doesn't make sense, but you're right. Like that can you imagine like,
1: yeah, because like, like, ba- like it makes you when you notice it, it makes you think about the experience of like you're in a room in this barrack with like 30 other guys or whatever. Yeah, and and you and if you all had to go to the bathroom at once, you'd be facing each other while you take a dump. Um, Yeah, so (laughs) it's just that that is a little bit of Kubrick humor I feel like thrown in here. So let's talk about Act Two because I do think this is where a lot of people kind of find some flaws with this movie, right? Right. Um, It's definitely where it really stops working for me. Is pretty much from moment one of the second act. I'm like, what are we doing? What are we doing here? <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Well, because it opens with this bizarre moment of a sex worker mm-hmm. approaching them, right, to, to, to proposition them, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and she starts saying, "Me so horny," which I, I immediately think of that song
1: that right. samples that. <laughs> yes. Which actually, like, this was, that was only like two years after this movie came out. I think it wow. was like really soon afterwards. But yeah. That line, again, talking about, number one, this movie really suffering from being parodied or being sampled in this case and just Mm. kind of being part of pop culture in general. But that line in particular really makes this scene very cringy for one thing. And then also, you just can't stop thinking about all the ways that that line has come up before in that song, which is called Me So Horny, by the two live crew, I think. But it's also, you know, I'm not sure about this one. But I think it might also be referenced in The Simpsons, in in uh, mm. Hungry Hungry Homer. One of the famous lines from that episode is Homer leaning into the mic and going, "Me so hungry."
0: Right. So yeah, is that
1: okay. is that from this? Don't know. I I, I couldn't find any. I evidence mean, that could that be an instance
0: is. of them referencing the song, which is coming, like, right. so, you know,
1: Or, or by circular. that point, that's a later episode within our scope of things, and so right. it may also have just been kind of in the culture by that point, where it maybe right. wasn't an intentional thing, but it's just it's floating out there in the pop culture ether when you're writing, right. you know? But yeah, the scene is out there in the world, and you know, it reminded me a lot of the conversation we had when we were watching You Only Live Twice around mm-hmm. just, like, All the racism in that movie and the way that it's all caught up in sexism, the way that Asian women are depicted in that movie, and this, number one, this obviously is falling into the same trap, but also that line in particular became such a tool of coming after Asian women in the real world, right? You know, I found this article by Tuke Nguyen about how, you know, she experienced this growing up, you know, people saying that to her and other Asian women in, like, the film industry having this experience of, you know, someone trying to pick them up using that line or just saying it in a public place or all of that kind of stuff or on the schoolyard, right? And so it kind of just has this really ugly afterlife that watching this scene, especially because it does pretty much nothing for the movie, it's kind of like... What a bummer that you end this very powerful, complicated, but powerful first act, and then you immediately launch into this bullshit? Like, what the hell well, is Well,
0: and not only that, it's then, like, the scene is punctuated by someone steals his camera and then does, like, a, a crazy karate flip, and then he does, like, a kind of racist, yeah, like, mocking karate move. Like, it's... And again, I can't tell if it's meant to be a criticism of... Racism towards the Vietnam people, or if it's meant to be played straight, like this is or all this of is the above, just, right? But you yeah, you're taking it
1: too, you know.
0: I and this is what I struggle with. This film is like I don't understand what Kubrick is trying to say, and I've heard people say that he wasn't trying to say war is good or war is bad. War is just war, and I'm like, but that's okay, like, then why do I need two hours? Like, you you have to tell me something with this, and that's really what... The the first act, I feel like I understand what we're trying to say here, but then the rest of the movie, I really don't... I think maybe the final moments of the film kind of pay it off, but not nearly enough to justify the meandering stuff in between i don't know i think it's that's just, this is where is, i'm struggling
1: yeah i feel like the final sniper fight ties back to the first act thematically but then you know this part that we're talking about right now is where you go off on this detour and it starts dealing with stuff that has nothing to do with this question of dehumanizing people becoming a weapon becoming a killer. You know, all of that. Once you get into him actually working for this military newspaper, Private Joker works Mm. for Stars and Stripes, it's called. And I feel like Kubrick starts kind of retreading some of the same shit that he did in Doctor Strangelove here, where Mm -hmm. it starts to just like, the stuff people are saying is just jargon. It's all kind of like papering over the ugliness of what's really going on, right? Where you're talking about kill counts and you're talking about the perception of the war, and it's just, it's all about sort of the marketing of the war. And it's like, that's kind of a different movie. <laughs> you're making yeah. a completely different point in this section where it's like about the journalism around the war, which again, talk about something that's been kind of done to death in one way or another that's kind of what we all think of about the vietnam war first televised war where you had people on the ground yeah you know you have the government trying to spin it in one way or another for however long the vietnam war was right like uh, a couple decades it starts veering off in that direction and then they just kind of wander around for a while until they find private cowboy who whatever his rank is now cowboy and his crew of people and Then they do some other stuff, and then eventually they have the sniper battle. But that whole section in there is so mushy, and the themes completely change. I don't really know what to make of all of that stuff. Well, and it's interesting because
0: this reminds me, and I hadn't really even thought about this until now, is that this is actually his third movie about war. Yeah. Because he makes Paths of Glory in 1957, which I I haven't seen, so I can't really say, like, what is he trying to say with that. But then he makes Doctor Strangelove, which is all about the absurdity of war. Like, that's clearly the thesis. It's like, this is totally absurd. Mm -hmm. And then we get to here, and again, it's like, is it the absurdity of war? Is it the absurdity of violence? Is it that the violence is meaning? Like, but why are we retreading, making, again, to this idea of like, oh, he waits until everybody else does it, and then he does it the best way. But like, this is his third war film. Granted, each one is kind of about a different war. And
1: different types of war.
0: Yeah, Paths of Glory is World War One. Yeah. Doctor Strangelove is the Cold War, but, yeah. like, why is he retreading this sort of area again? What is he yeah. trying to say
1: differently this time? One of the things I've seen said about this movie a lot, or the way it relates to other films that he's made, is just this idea that he's really interested in this idea of perfect systems going haywire, right? Mm. And so this is sort of another play on that same theme, right? of like Dr. Strangelove. It's this whole idea of like game theory. We know how everyone's going to act in these situations and everything's fail safe. It's all going to go according to plan. And then of course it goes disastrously wrong and the bomb goes yeah. off, right? Same thing with this, where it's like the first half's all about the military training. It's this perfect system for creating killers, right? People who are adapted to war. And then you get to Vietnam and it's a mess. They're not winning. And not only are they not winning, but they're losing in the most barbaric fashion where they're just Mm -hmm. killing civilians. They're just kind of overrunning the country. So I think that that is part of why he's retreading it is because this is kind of like a lifelong obsession with this theme of like the best laid plans, right? Humans have this idea that we're going to fix it once and for all and we have this perfect system. It's all going to work. And then inevitably that's not how it works out. And sometimes that's kind of funny. Sometimes that's terrifying, you know?
0: Well, and not only that, there's also this interesting line that comes up multiple times, which, again, I can't remember who says it either time, but it's something to the effect of, like, we're supposed to be helping this these people, and all they do is shit all over us. Right. And then later someone echoes, we're getting killed for these people and they don't even care. I guess there is sort of something about the futility of, of it all and like, why is this even happening? But they don't see that maybe they're not really helping. Maybe you shouldn't
1: be here. Like, Yeah. And it's super um, unclear too when, because like you hear all these interviews with the various soldiers and it's really unclear at that point how seriously you're supposed to take what they're saying. Are they just feeding a line to the reporters? Are we supposed to be mm-hmm. like, these people are saying nothing you know or are we supposed to be like hanging on their every word and being like oh wow they're making some really good points completely unclear what the intent is to me some of them i feel like it's supposed to be more obvious that like we're not supposed to trust what they're saying but like with that sentence that you brought up in particular it's like i don't know what kubrick wants us to think about that or if he's just kind of laying it out there as something that someone said and we can think whatever we want of it which seems to be sort of his philosophy with this movie but yeah, it starts to become really inscrutable. And it does feel like issues that have been dealt with elsewhere and better and in a more complete sort of way than we get here. So we get a couple new characters here, right? Mm, um, mm-hmm. Eight Ball is kind of just, uh, you know, he was on the back of the DVD, but doesn't, isn't very plot essential, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the ones who is fairly plot essential is Animal Mother. Right. Yeah. Played by Adam. Terrifying. Adam Baldwin. Right. Who is this guy who's really into war and wh- kind of just wants to be a badass, you know, like one of the sort of pop culture references that keeps coming up also in this movie is John Wayne. Right. And Joe yep. keeps making these jokes about John Wayne, first about the drill sergeant and then about animal mother. Basically, it's like anytime someone's trying to be kind of macho and like a cowboy, he'll make a joke about John Wayne. And so when he meets Animal Mother, he makes the joke again. Very similar vibes to Doctor Strange Love as well, where in that episode we talked about how each one of the soldiers is sort of a different American stereotype, right? A cowboy, Mm -hmm. a gangster, a perfect soldier, like all that kind of stuff. So I feel like that's coming up here again. But anyway, so Animal Mother is kind of this John Wayne cowboy type character who is always ready to kill people, doesn't really care who he's killing, it seems like, and in some ways maybe is the perfect result of this system for training killers. That's one way I think you could read that character is like, oh, he, he came out exactly how they wanted him to come out.
0: Right.
1: Um, but one of the things that I noticed this time that I didn't notice before is that I feel like Vincent D'Onofrio and Adam Baldwin look a lot alike. A lot alike. And so I actually pulled two headshots that I want you to take a look at and tell me which one is which.
0: (laughs) Oh. uh
1: Huh. These are two
0: different actors.
1: (laughs) This is Adam Baldwin and Vincent D'Onofrio, two different actors. These shots are taken from movies that came out one year apart.
0: Okay. Um, I'm going to say... God. I'm gonna guess headshot one is D'Onofrio and headshot two is Baldwin. No, you got it backwards. Oh my god. <laughs>
1: Isn't that crazy? They look yeah, so much alike wild. in those. I, I mean, didn't like,
0: I never made that connection during the movie, but looking at these two I I I literally cannot tell them apart
1: yeah so i mean the shots i have are one is from deadbolt in 1992 and that has adam baldwin in it and the other one's from dying young in 1991 with vincent d'onofrio and in those movies in particular i mean i chose them to make a point but they look almost identical in those in those movies (laughs) um but literally i even in this i was sort of noticing just certain similarities. Like, their teeth are very similar. Their eyes are very mm-hmm. similar.
0: Well, that's what I was trying... I was, like, looking at their teeth and being like, can I tell the difference from... And that's why I was like, this is the same actor. Yeah. Because they both have this weird, crooked snaggle snaggletooth.
1: And, and so, like, this is one of those instances where I'm kind of like, you know, is this just a coincidence or is this Kubrick, the master of details...
0: Trying right, to make that, it
1: draw a connection of some kind, right? Right.
0: That had Joker not snapped, he would have become Animal Mother, or yeah, if
1: Pile didn't snap,
0: yeah, oh, yeah. So, sorry, yes, Pile.
1: Yeah, excuse me. Or somehow he's reborn, you know, metaphorically, right, not literally. Interesting. Like even in the beginning, at some point, the sergeant, you know, is finally starting to get proud of Pile, and he says, "Yeah, mm-hmm. you're reborn hard." I don't know. There's some kind of weird connection there. I mean, and again, and maybe it's just a coincidence, and I'm just drawing the connection. But I was. That's the most around,
0: interesting theory I think I've heard to date for this.
1: This is interesting enough to make me go, oh, maybe there's something more to this movie. Okay, maybe, okay. or maybe it's maybe um, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe it's just me drawing a connection that's not there. I mean, again, there is something about Kubrick's movies that invites us to do that.
0: Um, totally, totally. And
1: and uh, this is a movie that has a lot less of that, but the way they look alike really just kind of made me think about those two characters together as kind of counterpoints, especially because one dies at the end of the first act and the other only shows up in the second act, right? Right. And so maybe there is some kind of transformation that's taking place. But um, yeah, yeah, I don't really know what it means, other than the fact that maybe they are both logical conclusions of the system. Yeah,
0: fascinating. Okay, I do want to talk about the sniper climax because, again, it's sort of the other iconic sequence from the film. Yeah. And I've been a little bit dismissive of the film on the whole in this section as well, but I I will say that I did find this sequence pretty tense. Maybe not the first chunk of it, but Mm -hmm. by... (laughs) by the time that the like first two or three guys have gone in and been struck down and like they're really now they're getting to the point where it's like okay we're running out of men here and yeah. the sniper is still taking us out and I'm starting to be like are they going to make it like i because again this is not one of those sort of traditional movies where it's like we know that the good guys are going to win in the end like right. really I, anything could have happened and it is also beautifully shot all of that stuff with the flaming buildings and like i think the cinematography in this section shines the brightest yeah um and then you get this sort of horrifying reveal of who the sniper is right and that it's this like young woman yeah and then of course she begs to be killed there was a lot to unpack in this sequence and i again i don't know that it ever rose to the level of that first 45 minutes yeah and i said earlier i'm not sure that this ending saves the film for me yeah but it at least makes me not want to just dismiss it entirely
1: right right i think because they're able to make the connection back to the beginning at the end it definitely strengthens the whole piece overall for sure and yeah the way that that scene sort of resolves right is that they find out that it's this young girl who's the sniper i want to say in the book or in the script she's supposed to be like Twelve, Like, very young.
0: Yeah, she's supposed to be very young.
1: I think Animal Mother shoots her, so she's wounded. And she's, like, praying and then asks them to kill her. And eventually, Joker's the one who shoots her. My read on this is that Joker thought his training was done Mm. after Paris Island. Right. But he wasn't actually done his training until he committed murder. Right. That is when he finally is a killer, literally, in this case, right? And that he is actually adapted for being part of the war.
0: But is he? Look, it's murder. Yeah. There's no two ways about it, but it's also a mercy kill. Yeah. Like, he's not able to... He sees her turn around, and he's not the one to fire upon her. Right. You know, he only commits this act when he's given permission by her... Which I think, again, this sort of speaks to this dichotomy of this character of the piece slash born to kill. Like he's still torn, killing, killing someone. But it's because he's been given permission and because she's suffering and he wants to put her out of her misery. Yeah. Yeah. There's something interesting here Mm -hmm. (laughs) that Kubrick is trying to say, Mm -hmm. you know, in that like, yes, he
1: is a murderer. Yeah. But I'm not sure. I think you're giving that character too much credit. (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. I'll give a little more evidence. So one of the things that happens in the second half is when they're talking amongst themselves, a bunch of the new soldiers and plus Joker and Rafter Man, another new character. (laughs) And one of them is talking about the thousand yard stare, right? Mm. And he Mm -hmm. sort of says, like, this is this look that real Marines get, like when they've been in the shit too long. That's sort of what he says. And when they've killed too many people and all of that kind of stuff. And in that moment, in the reaction shot from Joker, you see him suddenly have this thousand-yard stare in a way that is a transformation again uh, from what he was before. The other sort of motif throughout this movie is this phrase, world of shit, which comes up three times in the movie. The first time, I believe, is when they first get their rifles and they're at the shooting range, and he says something like,
0: You will not kill. You will become dead, Marie. And then you will be in a world of shit.
1: The second time is when Pyle is in the bathroom. And what Joker says to him is he says, Leonard, if Hartman comes in here and catches us, we'll both be in a world of shit. And Mm. Pyle says, I am in a world of shit. The last time that you hear it is in the final narration of the movie, when you hear Joker and he says, I'm in a world of shit. Yes, but I am alive and I am not afraid. So it's the sort of, it has this sort of transformation throughout the movie of like being in trouble and then Pyle being like, I'm in a world of shit and I can't take it anymore to uh, Joker at the end saying, basically, like, I am now fully adapted. I am now part of the world of shit. I'm not afraid. I'm fine. I can deal with this now. But, you know, at what cost? I think the implication is that he is now fully dehumanized and is now a weapon of war, and now he can march with his buddies and sing the Mickey Mouse Club song through, (laughs) like, the burning ruins of Vietnam. I think that's what the movie is about. And if that's true... Like I said, I think it makes it, in some ways, the most straightforward of Kubrick's movies. Um, yeah. That's that's my read on well, it. Well, it's
0: interesting, too, that Animal Mother, this clearly, utterly insane, maniacal guy, is the one who insists that Joker has to do the mercy kill.
1: Right, right.
0: Right, like, yeah, I, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit. I don't know. Again, this is the Kubrick thing, right? right. Like, there are layers here for people to unpack, and there's no one clear
1: answer, but yeah
0: yeah i don't know man
1: it's a tough ending i mean i think the thing is that like there's a part of us as viewers of film that want joker to be the hero the protagonist right the person Mm. that we can relate to that is more human than the others that is more whatever that we can that we can put ourselves into and i think kubrick is actively resisting that and is making a point of trying to be like no Do not relate to Joker. (laughs) He is—he do not relate to any of these people. Yeah, Yeah. he's just someone you're watching, and you are not going to find out uh, anything about him, whether it's his history or it's his interior life. You're not going to know. So I feel like at the end, uh, that's another reason why I feel like I'm leaning towards this maybe more pessimistic reading that like he doesn't get out of it. He doesn't come out of this experience with his humanity. But yeah, sorry, that's a real downer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
0: and on that note no
1: so Adam did you spot any parts that felt like Simpsons jokes in this movie
0: I, I mean not not I guess like some of the insults that are hurled at the guys like I guess it reminds me of the scene in Sideshow Boss Last Gleaming when he's (laughs) when he's reading out the, you know, if you don't open that door, I'll tear you up like a Kleenex at a snot party. You say you're in the military? Sweet and all the son. I'm gonna come in there and corpse you up. Corpse you up and mail you to mama. That kind of is in my mind, but on the whole, like it's this movie is far too
1: horrifying to be funny. Yeah. Um, What about you? The only moment that stuck out to me is part of that first half that's all basically montage, but where Private Pyle is forced to march behind all of the other privates with his pants down and his thumb in his mouth, Mm. which reminded me a lot of the scene from 22 short films about Springfield, (laughs) where Nelson Muntz is forced to walk with his pants down by the very tall man. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> and by this make the subject fun yes
1: no that's true one of yeah, our favorites yeah, yeah. To, to parody oh, yeah. so good yeah so that was more like it reminded me of that but I, I, it was also very hard to laugh at that because it is so brutal yeah. so yeah not an uplifting movie I would say even no. though you know the Simpsons managed to parody it and kind of transmute it into something funny and enjoyable but I guess that's true of a lot of the Kubrick parodies absolutely
0: so in terms of performance nate how did this movie do like i I, you know it's one that i've obviously heard kubrick people refer to and people talk about it but as far as i know it is not considered to be on the same level as say a 2001 the shining clockwork orange like those three seem to be the ones that everybody cites and then comedy people also will always cite dr strangelove this one kind of flies under the radar
1: yeah Yeah, totally. And I think that even the performance at the time kind of reflects that in a lot of ways. Like so opening weekend was about two point two million, which is, Mm. you know, fine. And the total gross, like up to the present is forty six point three million. So Interesting. With like that thirty million budget, that's really not great. So yeah, like, you know, not a huge like crowd pleaser. Not a not a blockbuster. Not a blockbuster. And even in terms of, like, the sort of critical reception, too, didn't really win a lot of awards. It was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay at the Oscars, nominated for Best Sound and Best Special Effects at the BAFTAs, which is interesting, Best Special Effects. That's pretty much it on the awards front. You know, critics were split. Some liked it, some didn't. A lot of the same points that we've already brought up around just unbalance between the first half and the second half. That was the big criticism and you know whether or not this felt like Vietnam, whether or not this had something to say about Vietnam. Those were all sort of questions people had. I think it's looked back on more fondly than it, it was even at the time.
0: Yeah, I mean, it does give me a great deal of comfort knowing that Roger Ebert referred to the film as being strangely shapeless. Right. So yeah, I yeah. like I, I feel like good someone just Yeah, I'm in good company in my assessment of this movie. That. You know, it's not that it's a bad movie. It's just like, it's, yeah, it, it doesn't quite have that firm grasp on what it's trying to do like his earlier work seems to.
1: Yeah, totally. Well, on that note, I mean, should we talk about what our sort of verdicts are here? Hmm. <laughs> you sound dissatisfied. I, I have, no, well,
0: I, <laughs> look, I mean, this is one of those films where I appreciate the technical skill, I appreciate the performances but it does nothing for me yeah. and i i that's on me i'm also now old enough and seen enough movies and like to understand the difference between like good and bad and then like personal taste right like i i don't think this is a bad film by any means like i can't i can't say that it is badly made or badly constructed. It's messy at times. It doesn't speak to me, but I don't think these kind of movies do. Yeah. I I famously also don't really like Apocalypse Now. I find the documentary but the making of Apocalypse Now (laughs) fascinating. Sure. Um, All this to say, like, this is definitely not my cup of tea, but there's certainly things here to unpack and, and stuff that I had, you know, never, ever sort of seen before or since.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, honestly, like, I liked this movie less than I remembered it, and remembered liking mm. it. And I think there is a good argument that this is one of the lesser Kubricks mm. in a lot of ways. Okay. I think that a lot of his other, especially his later movies, are just more interesting. They just show you places and people that are not like things you've seen before. Whereas this does feel very conventional. As much as I know he's bending the conventions of the war movies, not showing you all the warm and fuzzy stuff to kind of make it easier and more palatable, it still feels a lot like just a war movie in a lot of ways.
0: You know, at the beginning of this, I sort of presented this theory that people had of, like, Kubrick waits to do a genre or a type of movie, and then he makes the best one. Would you say that this is?
1: Or not so I I would not say that this is the best Vietnam war movie, let's say, is the genre I don't know if I could tell you what is. I do like Apocalypse Now. It is also a very flawed movie, but interesting as well, and beautiful and horrific in its own way. I haven't seen Platoon in a very long time, and I think I'd have to rewatch that to actually have a, a, an uninformed opinion on it. And then I don't know if there are any others that I would put in the same sort of category of, like, masterpiece contenders in terms of, the, like, Vietnam War movies.
0: I mean, I think The Deer Hunter is considered to be, but again, I've, yeah. never, I've never seen it, so I don't really know. I, but.
1: I have seen The Deer Hunter. I actually, I listened to a podcast episode of Unspooled that really changed my mind about that movie. I used to kind of like it, and now I, I can't unsee what they, <laughs> what they talked about in that episode, which Fair is enough. just the fact that it's incredibly contrived and actually is based in pretty much nothing about the Vietnam War. It's completely fabricated. And right. from that perspective, the idea that that is a representation of the Vietnam War is kind of terrible. <laughs> and so I can't kind of unsee that one. But yeah, like among those, I, I don't know if Full Metal Jacket totally holds up for me. Again, that first half I think is incredible. It really does work for me. And I I am one of those people that I do think I get a bit of a perverse enjoyment out of watching that, even though it's also terrifying and has a, a terrifying yeah. conclusion. But it, it is just moving, you know, from just that yeah. pure filmmaking standpoint, everything is just clicking, right? The cinematography, the editing, the performances, it's just moving along. And from that standpoint, I, I think that part of this movie is incredible, which is why it's the part that gets parodied.
0: <laughs> I don't know that I would agree with that filmmaker, and I wish I could remember who it was, because it was someone relatively legit. Like, I don't want to say it was Orson Welles, but it was like a name that you would know and respect, I don't know that I would agree that it is the greatest movie ever made, but I certainly, like, yeah, if this movie had ended at that 45-minute mark, I would, without question, be like, yep, masterpiece, like, stone-cold masterpiece, incredible work. It's a shame that the rest of the, you know, the next hour and 15 minutes never managed to rise to that level. Which, totally. you know, just sort of speaks maybe to how strong that, that first 45 minutes are. So... You know, if you really want to see what Full Metal Jacket is all about, like, those first 45 minutes is the best way to do it and then, like, move on with your day. Mm -hmm. I I feel like it's also one of those things, like, it's been parodied to death and the parodies really are so close to, like, the actual thing that it's not like you're sort of going, oh, this is where that came from. It's just, like, I don't know that I feel... I took much away from the experience. Yeah. What about you? Because you said, you know, you had obviously seen it before, but you sort of saying that you maybe like it less than you remembered.
1: Yeah. You know, last time I saw it, I was young. And and I feel like I took more entertainment value out of it when I first saw it. Mm. And now as an adult, I'm kind of like, this is a really brutal movie. And to your point, I'm not sure what I get out of it is worth subjecting myself to it. And right. I agree that, you know, like, honestly, the first act is basically a short story unto itself. And, like, you could 100% just watch that first act, and it's a complete story, in my opinion.
0: Well, and it's tough, too, because, like you said, like, the two best performances are only in the first act. Exactly. And then, like, like I, I not to say that Matthew Modine is bad in the film, but, like, he, I, he doesn't really...
1: He's not... His know, character like, doesn't give him enough to demonstrate his skill frankly. Because again, yeah. the whole point is that you're not supposed to get into this character's head, you're not supposed to know anything about him, so you don't feel an attachment to him, which is, it, yeah. it can be intentional and still be very difficult to deal with, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually kind of agree. I think for most people, I would not recommend this movie. If you really care a lot about Kubrick's films, you'll find more here to chew on. All of those connections mm-hmm. that we were talking about, like D'Onofrio's performance echoing Jack Nicholson in The Shining, or another perfect system going awry. You'll get more of that here, but if you're not one of those people, and you're not studying the Vietnam War in film, then I don't <laughs> yeah. know that you need to see this one, to be honest. I think that the the parodies take out of this movie what is the most memorable. Um what about extra credit? Do you do you have any thoughts on what you would recommend, especially as someone who's maybe not as interested in war movies?
0: The thing I'll recommend, it's not even a film that I particularly love, but are you familiar with MASH? Yeah. Like, either the movie or the TV series?
1: Yeah. I've never seen so either, I, but I know, the, I okay, know of know. Okay, interesting. <laughs> okay, so
0: MASH the TV series was something that I vividly remember watching, at for whatever reason, at my grandfather's house. My grandparents lived in Peterborough, Mm -hmm. which some of your mom's family lived in Peterborough as well? Yeah. So, you know, if we were going for the weekend, my sister and I would be in school and my dad would be working. So we'd have dinner and then, like, drive up to my grandfather's house. And usually by the time we would get there, it'd be later at night. And this was in that era when, like, on cable they were running, like, shows from the 60s and 70s just because there wasn't enough content. It's hard to imagine a time when there wasn't, like, too much content. And anyway, one of the shows that would be on when we would usually arrive was MASH. And for whatever reason, we all like myself, my grandfather and my parents all like would wa- enjoy the show. So we would just sit and watch a little MASH. Yeah. And it's a you know, it's an interesting show. It's it is a sitcom, as it were, but with like a darker under, you know, because it's about these military doctors in, in Korea. Right. But it's based on a book that was then adapted into a movie by, I think, actually, it's, like, the one Robert Altman movie I've seen. Yeah. And I remember as a kid, because I liked the TV show so much, that I when I found out that there was a movie, I, like, rented the movie. <laughs> And the movie is a completely different tone. It is way darker, way bleaker. It doesn't have Alan Alda being, like, cracking wise. I I revisited it recently, a a year or two ago, and hadn't seen it since I was a kid. And it's not really my cup of tea, but, like, it's interesting in its approach to this sort of black comedy of war. Right. The thing that I sort of struggle with is that some of the stuff feels very, very out of place in like watching it in 2020 with today's society in mind. Sure. But it's hard to tell if it's meant to be satire or if it's just a reflection of the morals of the time. Like it's very misogynistic. Sure. Which again, I can't tell if that's intentional because it's trying to draw attention to that. Right. Or is it, or it depicting it
1: or just... is it condoning it?
0: <laughs> exactly. So yeah. that's, there's some elements of it that I struggle with, but it, To me, when you talk about the sort of, like, the absurdity of war and and all of these things that I think these kind of films tend to try and talk about, Mm -hmm. it's interesting because it's not doing the thing that movies like Apocalypse Now or Platoon do, because those are dramas. Like, they are very serious, they take everything very seriously, whereas MASH is... A comedy. Yeah, it's it's not a straightforward comedy, but it is still a comedy. So so that's definitely something that I think people should check out if they haven't. Mm-hmm. And then obviously we we alluded to it, but Hearts of Darkness, which is this documentary about the making of Apocalypse Now, which is sort of told through the perspective of Eleanor Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola's wife, who was on set during this insane insane period of making that (laughs) film and she's reading from her diaries and stuff and it's this brilliant behind the scenes look of that disastrous production and i again i think it reflects everything that apocalypse now is trying to talk about hearts of darkness does a better job of getting to it because it just shows like the absurdity of like trying to continue while you're failing and just like, we just gotta keep going. We just gotta keep going. We know we're not gonna succeed, but we just gotta keep going. I think it's, yeah, it's a brilliant film. I like it way more than the movie itself. (laughs) Um, It was really, really hard to track down for many years, but now I think it's, if you get the Blu-ray of Apocalypse Now, it's included. So it's much, much easier to get your hands on, so. Nice. Highly recommend that.
1: What about you? I am gonna recommend something that is almost the polar opposite of this movie but also a war movie (laughs) okay it's called the best years of our lives and it's a movie that like was very lauded at the time that it came out which I believe was literally right after the second world war but I feel like has kind of dropped into oblivion yeah it came out in 1946 and it's about vets returning to their home life after the war and really kind of like struggling to find their place. And I hmm. think, you know, as a comparison to Full Metal Jacket, the thing that is beautiful about this movie is that it is all about the humanity of these people who went to war and came back and uh, are, are trying to pick up their lives again. It's a really incredible movie. I, I, It's also a very memorable experience of going to the theater for me because I remember we were in california my wife's family's from there and so we were in palo alto and they have this amazing rep theater there called the stanford theater and they were doing a double bill with this and i can't remember what the other movie was but we went and saw it and it was just like this beautiful movie palace they had an organ at the intermission and they were you know they had cheap concessions and this film was also just so incredible it's well acted it's touching the other cool thing about it is that some of the actors were themselves vets and again this is 1946 one of them i believe is actually a double amputee as well um and so just in terms of the sort of groundbreaking nature of this movie coming out when it came out again for the time it's very naturalistic too which is just so unusual. It doesn't feel like any other movie I've seen from 1946. So yeah, yeah. it's kind of a counterpoint to this movie, I guess you could say, in terms of really reaffirming the humanity of people who go to war. Well,
0: thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpsons fans, brought to you by the fine folks at ThatShelf.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave us a review and share this episode with the Simpson fans and film buffs in your life really does make a huge difference. I know every podcast says this, but like it really, really does. So please, (laughs) like, review us, give us five stars, do all that stuff. It would mean so much to us. And uh, until next time, Nate? We'll
1: see you around the Plex.
0: See you around the Plex. Did I ever tell you my Matthew Modine story?
1: No, you didn't.
0: Okay, so uh, this is our bonus content for this episode. So in the early days of Twitter, okay, because I was on Twitter very early. Not like the earliest, but I, I joined in like 2007 because I think it blew up at like South by Southwest that year. Sure. Like everybody was using it to sort of like meet up and talk about what they were seeing. So that's when I signed up. <clears throat> so I was on there very, very early days to the point where like when bigger names would join they didn't really know who or what to follow. For whatever reason, Matthew Modine started following me on Twitter. Oh, wow. And yes, and would every once in a while like chime in on something I would tweet? Like I guess he wasn't following enough people to like not see me in his feed. And so like one day I had made some comment about like reality TV on MTV being like the worst. And he he (laughs) followed up with like, yeah, uh more like brain rot or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. But it was something to the effect of like, yeah, it's not reality TV. It's literally just rotting our brains. And I was like, okay, Matthew Modine, weird thing to like chime in on, but okay. Didn't think anything of it. And then like a month or two later, I got sick. Mm-hmm. So I tweeted sixty bucks on cold medicine. I'm nothing if not dedicated to kicking its ass. Matthew Modine responds, should have spent $50 on organic fresh-pressed juices. It's nutrient-rich food your body is hungry for, not commercial medicine. Wow. And I was just like, okay. And I responded, I was like, well, maybe if I was making Dark Knight Rises money, because he had just been in the Dark Knight, I could afford fresh-pressed juice, but I'm an assistant editor, so it'll have to be Advil. And then I wrote, but I do appreciate you looking out for me. P.S. I believe in the Batman, because that was the line in... Uh Um, Dark night. Someone else then weighed in, I guess, calling him out for like what he said because it says at Lee Sharon at Adam Skulls, just trying to help out a fellow human. Anyway, so we had like this little <laughs> Twitter back and forth, but it was just like this surreal moment of like, I am literally nobody. Why is Matthew Modine trying to like poke the bear?
1: So anyway, that's why Matthew Modine. Twitter started. was a small, uh, small world back when it was still Twitter <laughs> and young.
0: Yeah. Fresh-pressed juices, there you go.
1: Fresh-pressed juices. Um, Healthy guy, that Matthew Modine. (laughs) Yeah, who knew?